Hello and thank you for joining us on the PBN podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Lockie. Today on the podcast, we have Mr. Salesh Rao. He's the founder and executive director of the environmental nonprofit Climate Healers. Salesh is also the co-producer of Cowspiracy, The Human Experiment and What the Health, and more recently, a new film, A Prayer for Compassion, coming out October 2018. Salesh is also an electrical engineer who trained at Stanford University, and he had an incredible uh, role to play in the creation of the internet as we know it. Welcome, Salesh, and thank you for joining us. So before we begin, um, what I like to usually ask our guests is to talk a little bit about, let's go back in time and talk about your plant-based slash vegan journey and how you kind of discovered this lifestyle from 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 the beginning. Yeah, so I uh, started working on the environment in 2005, 2006. Um, and uh, at first, I, know, I, I didn't know what to do. I was just reading up things. I was learning about what was going on. I got trained by Al Gore uh, in the Climate Reality Project. And I went around giving his presentation for about a year. And then I started Climate Healers in 2007. And um, at that time, I was a lacto-vegetarian. I always, always, I was raised a lacto-vegetarian, and um, and I thought that you know drinking milk was not that bad. It was just a little bit worse than going vegan, but mm-hmm. you know, not much worse, right? And this is exactly how they frame it in the environmental mm-hmm. uh, literature. So then I went to India and I started working with people in India on um, basically on climate change. I was working, I was learning from them more than working with them uh, because there are places in India, especially near the desert, mm-hmm. uh, in Thar Desert, Rajasthan, where you actually see all of the environmental problems mm-hmm. in one spot. You can see biodiversity loss, you can see ecosystems collapsing, you can see climate change. And so I. I happened to go to that village in uh, December of 2008 in uh, near the Thar mm-hmm. Desert called Karech. And I saw this uh, piece of land that had been say, uh, protected from livestock. Okay, So they had put up a stone fence to prevent livestock from going into this area. And it was lush green forest inside this inside the fence. And on the other side of the fence, I could see all these old cows walking around, eating up all the vegetation. And mm-hmm. it was almost like a desert. I immediately, uh, I knew I had to go vegan because I realized that as a dairy consumer, I was actually causing more harm than if I were to eat mm-hmm. some meat because these were all old cows who were dairy cows and people didn't kill the cows. So the cows were living for 25 years, eating up the forest. And so I realized that, you know, all of the accounting that's done in the environmental literature um, basically put the, the impact of livestock more on the, on the beef consumer than on the dairy consumer. Whereas if the whole world were to just go vegetarian, there'll be lots of dairy cows and who will be living for 25 years, and they'll destroy the planet today. <laughs> so it's an accounting gimmick. So I went vegan on and the so spot. When you saw this, and uh, when you saw this, obviously it was a bit of an awakening within you. And were you at the time heavily involved in the environmental movement? 
Yes, I was. I was. Uh, I was already giving talks about it, and I was already um, I was doing a lot mm-hmm. of research work. And uh, I had been in this village for about a year at that point, and I had we had been talking about giving them solar solar cookers and solar uh, lights. We had already distributed solar lights. So, so it wasn't just talking about the environment. I was also trying to do something, right? And so in the process, I got this uh, revelation, so to speak. I mean, in fact, when I first realized how bad this is, I, I had this mm-hmm. sense of shame. Um, is that because you felt like you had, you sorry. thought you had figured it out, that you were doing a good thing, and, right. and then you had this realization and noticed that it, was, it wasn't quite, quite there yet? <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> it, I mean, because you've always mm-hmm. been told that you're not hurting the cow when mm-hmm. you're drinking milk and, and you know, you're just taking a little bit at a time. So it's really not that much of an mm-hmm. exploitation that you're mm-hmm. doing to the cow. <laughs> In fact, you let the calf drink and then you mm-hmm. take the rest for human consumption. This mm-hmm. is what we were told. These are all the stories we were told. And I realized it was, uh, it was, uh, it was basically mm-hmm. a myth. Mm-hmm. And, and it actually is worse than eating. Um, in fact, uh, if, if I wanted to minimize my environmental footprint, after you finish exploiting the cow for milk, you have to mm-hmm. eat the cow. Yeah. Right? The cow so, gets a raw deal, really. You can't just let <laughs> I know, the cow gets a raw deal, yes. But that's how you minimize your impact, mm-hmm. right? And so I realized that because of dairy, there is beef. You know, I mean, it's, it's almost like a, it's like you cannot mix, separate the mm-hmm. two. Um, and later on, you know, I learned that the, the entire hamburger industry is depending on dairy cows because... Mm-hmm. Those are the cheap cows. That's the cheap mm-hmm. meat that you can uh, use to make McDonald's hamburgers, mm-hmm. right? So it's all so completely interconnected. And so when you step onto that, step over that ledge, you know, and start exploiting animals, you have to slide all the way to the mm-hmm. bottom. <laughs> there is no halfway there, mm-hmm. right? And, and with these kind of realizations, obviously, you know, you you had were born into a meat-free family or a meat-free environment. How how do you think it, when it comes to sort of the Western world and it's kind of what appears to be an addiction to animal products, when you look at the kind of sheer magnitude of what we're up against as, as a kind of movement, because, you know, I, I assume you consider yourself strongly part of the vegan slash plant-based movement, um, how, do we, how do we sort of, because it's a real Samson and Goliath situation, isn't it? Um, you know, mm-hmm. this, these industries are so intrinsically ingrained and like you just said, interconnected with each other or all, all kind of helping each other out in your kind of mind. And in, uh, in the next sort of few years, like what do you think are the key strategies we should be focusing on to try to sort of make those shifts in the minds of people like you, like you had? Uh, there are, you know, pe- different people are going to be uh, affected by different aspects of this issue. So um, generally, I talk about the four main reasons why people go vegan, mm-hmm. okay? And, and so this is the documentaries that we did kind of go through these four reasons. Um, the first is the health, okay? Um, and what we know is that, you know, 14 of the 15 leading causes of death in Western countries can be either mitigated um, or even reversed by adopting a whole foods plant-based diet, mm-hmm. a vegan diet. 
And so that's becoming more and more common knowledge. Okay. Um, and this is, I mean, what the, what the Health was a great um, documentary that Kip and Keegan did. You know, I'm so grateful to them for doing that work. And basically it showed uh, the corruption in the system, how it is all driven by money. And in fact, our governments are literally subsidizing diseases mm-hmm. and death. Would and we say that is that, you know, some people consider it conspiratorial, but it just makes sense that people who are ill and suffer with disease, you know, you can make a lot of money from people in these states, healthy people, people who self-medicate with, you know, good food, nutrition, exercise are not profitable. And it does sound conspiratorial, but it also makes a lot of sense. Right. It's a, it, I don't think it is conspiratorial. I think it is just uh, it just um, evolved that way. Mm-hmm. And now you've gone that far, so you cannot really turn around and go back and restart the whole thing. So, so people are stuck. Mm. I think but all these people are... Do you think it's premeditated? Are... Do you think this kind of industry collusion potentially between you know, ill health and the pharmaceutical industry. Do you you believe there's any kind of collusion or do you think it's like a happy accident? Um, I I do believe it's a happy accident and Mm -hmm. I I believe that it is not probably not happy, but it's an accident. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, and now they're stuck. They don't know what to do and they just keep doing the same thing over and over. So they just create more diseases and more pharmaceuticals more diseases, more pharmaceuticals, because, Mm -hmm. you know, and and I really believe that the environment, which is really the second reason why people go vegan, um, plays into all of these reasons. Uh, And the environment is actually the critical, it's on the critical path. It's the one that's not driving us to do things Mm -hmm. faster and faster. Mm -hmm. Um, It's because of the environment, you know, in the environment, we are pouring all these toxic chemicals Mm-hmm. Um, uh, which then work their way up the food chain. So our foods, uh, animal foods especially, are loaded with these toxins now. Yeah? And we are pouring more and more every year, so it accumulates. It doesn't just go for the away. Listeners, for, just for the listeners' sake, what kind of chemicals are we talking about? So we're talking about dioxins, uh, which are some of the strongest carcinogens known to man. And dioxins are created whenever we uh, chlorine, reacts mm-hmm. with hydrocarbons. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for instance, when we do, uh, when we make paper, mm-hmm. uh, we bleach wood pulp to get make it white. So that's literally chlorine reacting with hydrocarbons. So paper mills are pouring a whole bunch of dioxins into the, into the atmosphere. Um, so this is why paper mills are located near poor neighborhoods wow. because the rich people don't want to breathe all that. But mm-hmm. unfortunately, the dioxins you know, they go up in the air, they come down in the rain, they're absorbed by trees and plants. And the plants and trees are very good filters. They filter all the dioxins out and store them in their, in their trunks and their branches. And they uh, transpire, you know, fresh water through or clean water through their leaves. Now, animals go and eat these plants and they store the dioxins in their fat tissues. And then they give it to you. To the rich mm-hmm. people, <laughs> mm-hmm. through mm-hmm. through their milk or through their meat, right? Mm-hmm. And so we then take the milk and we then um, concentrate that into cheese and eat it. So you're going to get a mm-hmm. very concentrated dose of dioxin when you eat that. 
So even mm. though we sort of plotted to put the paper mills near the poor neighborhoods, the rich people are actually getting more of the dioxin than the poor people. Because the poor people not don't eat so much. Not to mention the chemicals. Not I, to mention yeah. the pesticides, sorry. The pesticides, herbicides, fungicides. There's just so many things that are being right. put onto our crops and into the fields. Right. And like you say, these large animals, especially cows, consume huge amounts of plants, probably, you know, sprayed with all number of things, you know, that kind of keep away pests and bugs and birds. And right. um, I think this is the thing a lot of people don't realize is that when we consume these larger animals, these substances have accumulated in their flesh, just like they accumulate in trees and other living right. biomatter. Um, right. But when it comes to sort of the, you know, the food system, um, my my journey kind of in this whole experience began actually with watching Food Inc. on Netflix. Mm. And I was kind of horrified and blown away by how the food system, you know, predominantly in the US has kind of, you know, turned animals and fruits and vegetables into into kind of these mechanical systems where, right. you know, all humanity and all, you know, nutrients has kind of been extracted and automated or or replaced by artificial substances. Um, it's got so big, factory farming. It's become so powerful. Do you see any way around this monster? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I really believe that this is going to change very quickly because... Um, the problem with the, uh, I mean, the, the problem they face is that they totally depend upon growth. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you don't have to make a company's revenues go to zero for you to um, make them disappear from the landscape. You just have to mm -hmm. stop them from growing. Mm -hmm. Then their stocks will go down, and you know the CEOs will. Get, I mean, the whole thing collapses if we just prevent them from growing. Mm -hmm. So this is why they are, they are not such a, uh, I mean, it's easy to topple them, okay? But at the same time, we have to build the alternate systems, the alternate systems which are regenerative, which uh, put the nutrients back into the soil. And we have to build all these processes that don't uh, toxify the environment. You know, mm -hmm. we, we cannot keep doing this anymore. We are pouring 250 billion tons of toxic chemicals uh, chemicals into the environment every year. 250 wow. billion tons. This is like, you know, wow. 30 tons per person. Incredible. It's, I mean, this is beyond, you know, I mean, beyond belief that this is what we have been doing. It is. Year after year. It is. Okay, year after year we've been doing this. And How is humanity kind of... You know, how is, what is what I find, I often think to myself, how have we allowed it to get so bad? Is it just because humans are very good at sticking their heads in the sand? Or what is it? Why do you think we, you know, most of humanity seems so oblivious to what's happening? We, uh, we are all being factory farmed. Okay, so we are all being fed stories that um, help, you know, make us go in this one direction, you know, in, which is all about accumulating wealth for a few people. So we are mining the planet. We are all mining the planet and sending the wealth up to a few people who are accumulating that wealth, mm -hmm. a so-called wealth. It's literally just pieces of paper with pictures of the queen on it, right? Or, mm -hmm. uh, or numbers in a computer. But they feel more secure when they get that wealth. Mm -hmm. If you look at it in our entire culture, yeah. 
is based on normalized violence. There is violence going on uh, to the animals. There is violence going on with people. So when you're forced to do something mm -hmm. that you really don't want to do, that's violence. Okay. Mm -hmm. So any kind of coercion to me is violence. So this is a society mm -hmm. built on coercion. It's a culture built on coercion. Because if you don't, if you start doing things that you want to do and not what you have to do, then you won't get food. <laughs> so someone is controlling the whole thing so that you do what you're told to do, right? <laughs> and so you have to go get a job <laughs> and, and, and follow, follow the, rules. the rules. Yes, exactly. And it's all set up by some, you know, it used to be like a queen. Now the queen has become a figurehead and the king has become a figurehead, but... Uh, but there are still elites who are really controlling the whole thing. It still is the same feudal system. Mm -hmm. okay? mm -hmm. It's just much bigger, right? It's now colonized the whole planet. So that's the mainstream mm -hmm. culture of normalized violence. And violence mm -hmm. fundamentally is not sustainable. This is why... Mm -hmm. It's a house of exactly. cards, isn't it? A deck exactly. of cards. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this is why we are seeing all these environmental uh, issues showing up now, you know, climate change, biodiversity loss, you know, ecosystems collapsing. And this is a signal from nature saying that you're done with this phase of your life. So as a species, we have been told that unless we change, we're going to f face our own death. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I always talk about the analogy of the caterpillar and the and the uh, transformation of the caterpillar from parasite to butterfly. Right, right. <laughs> I think we talked briefly about it when we met about you know hum humanity stand in front of three options. I think you said around total destruction and oblivion, continuing along now in the state the status quo, or this potentially this third option which is, you know, is the future that you see for us. Do you want to talk a bit about, you know, what kind of future you see for humanity? So what I see is the vegan movement growing exponentially. Uh, it is already growing exponentially. So it's just about, you know, um, putting some structure around it, a little bit of, of, of a direction so we know exactly where we're heading and mm -hmm. allowing it to bloom. So that is mm -hmm. the... Uh, exponential response to an exponential destruction that's happening on the other side. So if, if we did that, then we would transition from the caterpillar to the butterfly phase of humanity, mm. where mm -hmm. we live in freedom, where we live in harmony with nature, and we become a part of the ecosystem. We've always been a part of the ecosystem, mm -hmm. you see. I mean, I always um, felt that... Uh, when I was growing up, I was told all these stories about how uh, we are a part of nature, a separation is a delusion. This is what yoga is all about, right? And um, yoga is really union, and that you have been always united with God, but you didn't know it, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, I thought that they were, they were, it was just a story. It wasn't true. Um, but... Mm as I worked on the environment and uh, things happened in my life, I began to realize that it is actually absolutely true. <laughs> mm -hmm. So it is. We've always been doing something on behalf of nature, but we didn't know. But what, what the irony is, is that everything that exists on this planet, every bird, every tree, every 
insect, every human being, we are all connected. We're all interlinked, sharing strands of DNA and genetic information with almost every single animal. I think we have, I saw a graphic on Facebook um, recently, which don't quote me on this, but it said that humans are share about 50% of our DNA with a banana. <laughs> right. Um, which which sounds incredible. It sounds ridiculous. Um, and you almost sort of have to laugh about it. But if you look beyond that, and whether that's true or not, you know, we are all connected because we all sprang from a common ancestor. Um, you know, the single celled organisms that kind of expanded and grew on this planet. And you know, oneness and, and unity of all living beings, you know, is something that we we all know intrinsically, I think. We all have this compassionate nature within us, but somewhere along our history, we seem to have kind of separated ourselves mm -hmm. from, you know, Gaia, from the earth, from this entity that we are a part of and decided that we were, you know, we were, we were more special than anything else on earth. I mean, what do you say to people that say, well, you know, Why do you put so much concern into animals and non-human um, animals? Because ultimately human beings are more important. We're special. Because um, right. you hear that a lot, don't you? Right, right. Yeah. I mean, I hear that a lot, but I, you know, uh, the, res the response I get, I give usually is that uh, we are doing this because it's about, because it's for us. It's not mm. for the animals. We're doing it for ourselves. You see, in, in a way, selflessness is really the highest form of selfishness. Mm -hmm. It's enlightened selfishness. You know, so uh, we are not doing this just to save all the animals. We're, saving, we're doing this to save our children, ourselves. So we go vegan um, for love. That's the most important reason why we go vegan. And uh, as far as the separation... You know, we have to. We are telling this a new story. We have to tell a new story because the old story is that we are separated, and so now we are sort of, you know, destroying nature because we are not part of it. Mm -hmm. And and it's it's uh, it's uh, it's been a long competition, and uh, we are the species that's winning this competition. So we are killing all the others who are not who have lost the competition, and then among us we are going to compete as to who's who's better and. We, You know, again, it's the same thing will continue, right? Until there is a few, there's a few winners left who will probably then go to Mars. Huh? It's interesting, isn't it? The game of survival of the fittest, right. when in fact the game is, is actually not to win because if you do win this game of survival of the fittest, you ultimately end up being um, the only one left and living <laughs> on a barren, sterile <laughs> completely lifeless planet because you know humanity could end up like that we could end up destroying all the animal life from this planet which which i think we've already destroyed up to 50 percent of the biodiversity in the last you know 100 years or so correct me if i'm wrong but I, i'm aware that it's pretty bad and if we continue along this traje trajectory there will be nothing left and everything that is alive today will either be artificial or humanity will kind of die out and live in very small pockets across the planet. And, and, and then we kind of hope that, you know, Mother Nature can revive something. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, um, the, the statistics are actually worse than that. Between 1970 and 2010, mm. we killed 52% of all wild vertebrates, wild, wild animals. 
Mm-hmm. So um, that's in terms of the total biomass. They killed more than mm-hmm. half of them in weight. And then uh, between 1970 and 2012, that number became 58%, mm-hmm. so which means the rate at which they're dying wow. now is at about 3% per year. Mm-hmm. And at that rate, by 2026, we are on track to wipe out all of them. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, right. So this is why we, we, we have to change within the next eight years. I mean, all of humanity will have to change within the next eight years. In the next eight years? Yes. You think we have enough time? Yeah. See, it's an emergency. So I, I tell people, it's a little bit like, you know, you've been told that you have cancer, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and you have to have surgery done to remove the cancer. Mm. If you don't do it, you're going to die. So will you do it? Mm-hmm. And once you mm-hmm. do it, will you change your lifestyle so that you, you will thrive? But what if what if humanity is the ca- you know some people say humanity is a cancer we behave right. like a malignant um, tumor kind of eating and consuming and destroying in our wake we don't return anything we don't nourish and replenish the earth right. I mean some of us do but most human beings live mindlessly consuming and destroying you know with a sense that we are the apex uh, of li- sentient life on this planet with some kind of sanctioned right to be able to take what we want kill what we want um and dismantle anything we want with this kind of attitude which i wouldn't say is intrinsic within humanity it seems to be a cultural thing doesn't mm-hmm. it like it's something as a result of our time on this planet so far with such with such an ingrained way of thinking and being you know can we truly turn this this titanic around <laughs> yeah i'm really struggling with that see that's the story <laughs> i'm an optimist like you <laughs> see that's the story that we have been telling ourselves that we are a cancer we're literally doing this mm-hmm. but in nature when you look you know something that seems mm-hmm. destructive on one level mm-hmm. if you look closer you'll see that it is actually doing something else that is that helps mm-hmm. the ecosystem on, a, on another level so the example mm-hmm. i use is an elephant you know if you think of an elephant a herd of elephants trampling through the forest. They are killing all the plants in their way and they break mm-hmm. off branches and eat all the leaves and throw throw the branch away. And then they, mm-hmm. they drop these huge amounts of poop and walk by, mm-hmm. right? And it looks like the elephant is a mm-hmm. very destructive creature when you look at it on that, that level. But then you, you mm-hmm. step back and you see, what did that do? You realize that wherever the elephant walked, is the only place that animals can walk in the forest. So they're actually creating pathways mm-hmm. in the forest for all of us. Mm-hmm. Okay, Because mm-hmm. otherwise the Western Ghat forests in India are so thick that no one can walk anywhere mm. except mm-hmm. where the elephants walked. But then the humans, then the humans come along and level and flatten the whole forest. <laughs> no, no, hold on, hold on. Let's finish the elephants and then I'll come to the humans, okay? So then, uh, you know, where the elephants have broken the branches off, that's where you get sunlight to stream down and nourish the underbrush. Otherwise, the canopy is so thick that there will be no sunlight for the, for the plants growing in the underbrush. Mm-hmm. So the elephant is doing a job there that helps the ecosystem as well. And elephant poop contains jackfruit seeds, mm-hmm. and that's how new jackfruit trees are born. Mm-hmm. And the elephant walks for miles and miles before she poops. So, so she's spreading the jackfruit all over the place, okay? So everything the elephant does actually helps the ecosystem at another level. So 
what we have done now is to come up with a story for humanity that matches what happened to the elephant. Okay, it looks like what we've been doing is destructive. But if you step back and see what has been happening, you know, the sun is a, the sun is a, a red dwarf. Okay, so the sun, which a, a red dwarf increases in intensity over time. Mm-hmm. So over the last half a billion years, uh, complex life has been on, on Earth. The sun has become 10% uh, hotter mm-hmm. than it was when it started, right? So, which means that we are getting 10% more sunlight now than we used to 500 million years ago. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the record of the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and what we have estimated is that the carbon dioxide levels were much, much higher uh, 500 million years ago maybe 20,000 parts per million or 5,000 to 50,000 is what the estimate is. So 20,000 is the average of that, right? And over time, as the sun got hotter and hotter, the earth kept shedding her blanket. This is like the CO2 is her blanket, right? She kept shedding her blanket so that she gets, she doesn't, um, she gets uh, uh, used to the, the hotter sun, right? And then over the last 3 million years, we have gone through a series of ice ages and interglacial periods because the CO2 levels were so low, like 180 to 280 parts per million, that any small change in the sun's uh, input to the earth is enough to cause a major change in the CO2 level. So so essentially we came into this zone where the old ways of stabilizing the uh, climate no longer works for the earth. This is why it went, kept going into an ice age and an interglacial period. Ice age, interglacial period. We've gone through that like a hundred times okay, over the last three million years. And uh, the ice ages were much longer than the interglacial periods. So what did the Earth do? She created us. And what did we do? We came along and in the current interglacial period, we started agriculture. Mm-hmm which is destructive, right? looks destructive. Mm -hmm. We destroyed the forest. But in the process, we kept the CO2 levels in the the temperature uh, and the temperature constant over the last 10,000 years. We prevented the Earth from going back to another ice age. Okay? So the Earth would have gone back to another ice age 6,000 years ago if we hadn't done that. If our ancestors... If we hadn't existed. If we hadn't existed, it would have gone back to another ice age. Instead, we kept the temperature constant by deforestation. Mm-hmm. And then over the last 200 years, we discovered fossil fuels. And using that, we have now developed all the tools and technologies we need, to, first of all, to understand what we did. And secondly, now to keep the temperature constant without having to deforest anymore. In fact, we have to bring back the forest so that we can stop this fever that the earth has. Mm-hmm. Okay, we have to bring back the forest. That's a good way to describe it. (laughs) Essentially, we we are the thermostat species. The Mm. earth created us and said, I want to set the thermostat here, Mm. okay? And I want you to serve me to do this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so we are here to take care of all the animals. We take care of the earth and maintain the temperature. And we are going to do it, whether we like it or not. We are going to do it, okay? Um, Either we do it or we are going to be dead. Mm -hmm. (laughs) <laughs> so we have no choice. 
You've been but given when, no choice. But when we look at uh, when we look at how things are now and how things have been in the in the re- in recent history, hmm. how is it possible? How is it? You know, I mean, I try to be an optimist, and I have considered myself an optimist in the, in for most of my life. But in recent years, I've really struggled to maintain that optimism about the future, the possible future of our species. Right just because of the sheer volume of consumption and the level of kind of greed that seems to go on within our species when it comes to taking in excess. You know, we never sort of take just enough. We always have to take a lot more and, in fact, try and scrape every mineral, every animal, every ounce of whatever it is we're looking for mm-hmm. um, until it's extinct or it's finished. I mean... <laughs> What I guess my question is, is this behavior is it's not necessarily intrinsic within us as people, but it's a learned practice. I mean, do we need to be doing more work on ourselves, on our children and on our communities that shifts this way of thinking? Well, it's a systems issue. See, I'm a systems engineer and um, I, I study systems so I understand why things happen the way they happen. And um, the system is set up so that those who are greedy are rewarded more than those who are not greedy. Mm-hmm. And when you have a system like that, you, are, you're, you know, then you, and then you say, well, people are greedy. Well, they're forced to be greedy. If they're not greedy, they don't get, the, you know, they don't get anything. Mm-hmm. So you're only looking right. at the successful people there, and successful people there are the ones who are greedy because that's what the system is doing. Mm-hmm. So you, if you... Put yourself in a system that rewards greed, in which we are subsidizing death, disease, and destruction through the government, for heaven's sake. <laughs> Our governments are subsidizing death, disease, and destruction. Mm. Then, how do you expect to be sustainable? Mm. Right? How do we expect it to be any different from what it is? So you have to create a system of normalized nonviolence. You have to create that system and make it so that anyone can adopt it. So it has to be open source, it has to be transparent, and it has to be such that you have small pockets of, of people who can, um, who can become like a pod in the system. And then mm-hmm. the system then shows them how to interact with other pods, right? Mm-hmm. So you create a system like that, and then you tell people, okay, if you live here, if you live in this way, you, we can guarantee that you'll be sustainable, that we'll be sustainable, right? Because mm. it is possible. It is possible. It is possible for us to live in harmony. That's, that's the frustrating thing, isn't it? That human beings are filled with potential. We have so much to give this world, to give each other, the animals. Right. And that's what's so difficult sometimes when you look at our potential, technology, science, art, music, culture, agriculture you know vertical farms all these you know genetic engineering cultured meat you know there's so many incredible things that we're doing that could potentially solve so many of our problems right but you know we seem to be sitting on our hands sometimes <laughs> no no because the, the system is forcing us you know in this factory farm so we've all been mm. factory farm to go that way so that we are funneling money funneling all the fruits of our labor to a few elites up there okay so we just have to build a new system where we are not being factory farm, where we are doing what we want to do, right? 
uh, where we... But who's building the system? This is the whole uh, Vegan World 2026 conference that's going to happen next month. Mm. Uh, we are mm. coming together and it's going to be just like... See, this is what happened in the internet. They, during the internet, the internet mm. also was around for 20, 30 years before the standards committees came together and started creating standards and best practices mm. for how do you do connections so that you have interoperability. So you build according to a spec that is created by the standards body. You know that you can talk to mm. someone else who is built according to the same spec. Okay. Mm. So we, we had this compliance issue, you know, tests and things like that. And we made, made it so that it's easy for you to build systems on the, for the internet. And that allowed the internet to, blow, to grow exponentially. So within 10 years, you went from people saying the internet is going nowhere to people saying, I cannot live without the internet. Okay? So that <laughs> yeah. happened. Things change quickly. Change very, it can change very quickly, right? So, mm -hmm. But it's a systems mm -hmm. shift that had to happen and a standardization process that had to happen. And veganism is in exactly mm -hmm. the same state as the internet was in 1995. So veganism, mm -hmm. also the people have been going vegan for various reasons. And you know, um, we, we have been building um, clean energy systems. We've been building new agriculture systems, clean meat systems, you know, all kinds of things. But it's all happening in a haphazard way at the moment. So you need something that connects it together and say, here is a new system in which all of these fit. All of these will become important. And this is how you interoperate with other communities that live like you. Okay. And if you create mm -hmm. that, then you can allow diversity to flourish in each community because not everyone is the same. Right. You can have mm -hmm. diversity, allow diversity to flourish and you still have interoperability, meaning you know that you can talk to some other part that's in this new system. Right? So you have to create this new mm -hmm. system and make it available to people for free. You make it open source. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then see where it goes. Right. So it's just mm -hmm. it's about helping veganism become the dominant ideology. It's becoming the dominant culture. Mm -hmm. A culture of nonviolence, normalized nonviolence, should mm -hmm. become dominant. So that the violence is an egregious act. Mm -hmm. Something that happens once in it a while. It becomes unacceptable, doesn't it? Right. It's something that, you know, maybe a few people do it because they are still stuck in the old ways of thinking or whatever. Mm. But uh, today, you know, we have a system where violence is normal, right? Mm. I and mean, we are killing so many animals, but it's all behind closed doors, so you don't see it. And we and pretend we are not violent. But, it, but also <laughs> each other. We kind of, exactly. you know. Exactly. We talk about life as if it's a precious thing, but really, we how much do we value the life of each other and and the life of other sentient beings? I mean, this takes me on to kind of the importance of life and what it means, you know, why sentient life and why consciousness is is actually you know a precious gift. You know, we are the universe, each one of us, an individual, you know, a fragment of consciousness, if you were. And we're all kind of part of the whole. You know, we've talked about stories and the way we kind of tell ourselves these stories. I very much see us and our place on this planet as part of the kind of cosmic story, this this unfolding of, you know, a drama, you could say. And we are some of the players on it. And, you know, right. like you say, we're, it's up to us to decide how the story is written. And, right. you know, we can we can surrender to, you know, our kind of primordial 
um, impulses, or we can look beyond that and see a future where, you know, humans and animals live in harmony. We live in harmony with the planet. We generate and create our own food and live in a symbiotic relationship rather than a parasitic one. And I absolutely um, believe the same as you that we have this capability my only sticking point is the time just knowing how fast things are changing environmentally can we get eight you know almost eight billion people um to shift um enough to create enough of a change to maintain you know um livable conditions in this world um but with with your work with the climate climate healers and vegan world 2026 I mean, what kind of things will be happening within these conferences and in the, and within this organization over the next few years to kind of, you know, foster in this kind of world? Yeah, so what uh, the, the Vegan World 2026 conference that's happening next month, uh, I see that as the beginning of a series of uh, meetings that we are going to have to do, okay? Over, so perhaps once every four months we meet in different places, and we keep working on different systems within that, subsystems, mm-hmm. uh, and come up with interoperability specs for those subsystems. So we have a list of 40 different transitions that need to happen on our website. And you can take a look at that and you say, okay, I'm interested in this subsystem and I want to work on that. And you create a committee and then you invite people to come, you invite experts to come and talk about what they have done already. and the community will then choose a recommendation. So everything that we are doing in this is going to be just recommendations. This is how this is what we think is the best way to do this. This is what we think is the best way to do that. And make sure that they are they all interoperate with each other. So we are always coming back and reporting to the larger community as to what we have done. So it's a process that we are creating. So it's the beginning of that process. And just like any standards process, you know, it's going to require a continuous work. It's not just um, one-off mm-hmm. meeting. So I envision this Vegan World 2026 conference to happen in in uh, Arizona every year, probably end of October, mm-hmm. and probably happens in the UK in uh, you know in summer, and probably mm-hmm. happens in um, you know some other place in February or so something like that. So you get like you know three different meetings every year that happens. So this will be a plenary meeting where we where we update ourselves as to what other work has been done. So during every meeting, it's go, it's also going to be uh, telecast live, so people can participate on the internet. So it doesn't have to be all mm-hmm. travel, but mm-hmm. we we really believe that people have to come together in one place uh, uh, to be more effective at um, creating something like this. At least I, the initial one. I like one. the quote you have. I like the quote you have on your website, which says, history is a race between education and catastrophe, H.G. Wells. Right. <laughs> it's so brilliant. And that's the thing, that we have all this wisdom um, and knowledge within within us or here in our societies to solve these problems. Uh-huh. Um, it's really that choice, isn't it, between these two paths of kind of transformation right. and destruction. Um, what else, um, when it comes to kind of remaining hopeful because obviously you know we're surrounded by media that constantly feeds us information we're always being told this and told that we're being kind of spoon-fed how to think how to feel Mm -hmm. um 
always social media has become the opiate for the masses right. where fake news and war and destruction and violence is kind of fed to us and it feeds into you could say that kind of morbid side of humanity we we kind of you know we have this morbid curiosity with these kind of dark things how do we as a species maintain that hopeful positive nature because i think it's quite difficult sometimes with so much negativity around us yeah. how have you done it well um i i really believe that hope comes from a position of fear hope comes from the ego the hope you know ego says i am in charge right i have mm-hmm. to, i can do this i can do that i am in charge what i discovered is that you know i was an agnostic until about 2009 2010 and then um when my granddaughter was born she brought me to faith and i realized that faith is a better way of looking at it because it comes from a position of love okay mm-hmm. you are essentially doing the same thing except now you be- you become more effective because when you have faith you're saying faith to me is the unshakable conviction that love conquers all love is in charge okay so then you say mm-hmm. we are going to transform so this is the story mm-hmm. i tell we are going to have a vegan world by 2026 whether you like it or not okay it's going to happen <laughs> so it's up to us to figure out how do we make how do we fit in it how do we contribute to it mm. you're still mm-hmm. working on this but now you're working with a little more conviction you know what i mean so now i'm working on this with a little more conviction and i'm putting everything i have into it and i don't get stressed because i'm assuming that i'm part of a larger whole i am just a small mm. tool in this the mm. little me is just a small tool in this so i'm just going along and saying this is the, this is how I, how i can contribute because i have knowledge about systems so i can help people figure out what this new system should look like okay so i can figure mm-hmm. out you know i can help people figure out how to create these processes that's so that's my mm-hmm. contribution but i'm just a part of the whole and the, and lots of people are coming together and creating all the other pieces that need to happen you see kip and keegan came along you know now thomas jackson and the melody came along and did this new movie called a prayer for compassion which is absolutely beautiful yes tell us about this it sounds wonderful prayer a prayer for compassion coming out october next uh, right it will be screened at the conference uh, the premiere is going to be at the conference the vegan world 2026 mm-hmm. conference um, and so prayer for compassion looks at uh, veganism from the perspective of every religion on the planet lots of different religions so basically we talked mm-hmm. to a whole bunch of religious leaders and got their perspectives and mm-hmm. we put together something that tells you a very consistent story that compassion is at the core of all religions and uh, that's what ties all religions together and so it doesn't matter whether you speak at it you know whether you look at it from a muslim perspective or a hindu perspective or a christian perspective or a zoroastrian perspective or even from perspective of someone who is religious but not who is spiritual but not religious it's compassion compassion is the foundation of religion of this um, so so when when we see that and it's compassion for all life there is no distinction between people never say you know 
you can be compassionate towards this, but you can do whatever you want with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All life is precious. Mm-hmm. It is, and that's why I always say to people that you know. All life, all sentient life has an ability to be in the world just like you, to see and experience nature and reality and light and color and pain and heat right. and love and connection and joy, you know, that these opportunities for consciousness to express themselves, these individuals, they're precious. You know, whether their life is for, you know, five months, six months, 10 years, 20 years, 100 years, you know, each of us is so, so precious. And this is the the kind of realization, I guess, that a lot of vegans and young people and, and older people kind of come to when they awaken to this way of thinking. They suddenly realize, wow, you know, I've been a part of this system, this oppressive, violent system, uh, and I didn't know. And it is very difficult for a lot of people when they first kind of come right. into that realization. But I think, you know, what is great about what you're doing and about, you know, the movement is that, you know, we're all working together to try and create this this sort of paradigm shift, which is, I think, what you're talking about. Um, and I and I and I do hear and feel the sense of urgency with every passing moment that we need to push and transform and continue to grow. And I think there is hope and there but there is also more than hope. There is action being taken, right. isn't there? Right. There's action being taken. And, and there's also a new story being told. Mm-hmm. Even though it looked like we have been doing destructive things all along, mm. we were actually doing something productive for the planet. We were keeping the temperature constant, preventing it from going into another ice age. Mm. And now we are putting together all the systems and technologies we need to keep it there. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we have done something good for all life. So that because an ice age is a bad thing for all life, you know, a lot mm. of animals die in the process of going from mm. uh, an interglacial period to an ice age, and then back again, and then back again. So it's that's been going on for three million years. So in in a sense, we have reduced suffering by doing this. Mm-hmm. Okay, we will be reducing suffering in the long run, for sure, when we uh, take up our new new role as the thermostat species on the planet. Mm. It's our job to take care of all other life and to make sure that uh, you know the Earth doesn't go back to the, another ice age. Mm. Yeah, and it's a lot of responsibility. Life, see, it's actually it's a little bit like you know we have we have uh, homeostasis, right? So our body temperature stays the same no matter where we go. We have homeostasis, so the Earth wants homeostasis. And so she said, you know, I'm going to create a species and make sure I get homeostasis. Mm. (laughs) And and we we have been doing it. Mm. This is the beauty of it, is that unconsciously we have been doing it. Mm. So which tells you that there is something larger at play here, Mm. not just you. Mm-hmm. Okay, something larger at play that has been putting us to work all along that we, that we didn't know about. But the pendulum has potentially swung a bit too far the other way. Yes, uh, but we. I think I really think we needed to do all this because every technology we have created mm. has been created in the pursuit of war. Mm. The internet was created in the pursuit of war. Mm. You know, um, so everything came in the pursuit of war, and now we are knowing, we are seeing how it can be deployed mm. for for love. Right. We can create value. We can create value out of things and objects and inventions that were previously created for destruction. Exactly. Mm. Yeah, exactly. But I think we would not have created it if we hadn't been pursuing war. Mm. So this is the beauty of this story is that I really believe that uh, if 7 billion Buddhas would never have built anything because 
Buddha would be very happy by himself, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you needed this restless, restless people yeah. who are not happy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sometimes to go, sometimes the the way back is also the way forward, uh, which is a, a quote from one of my favorite films as a child, The Labyrinth, with David Bowie. Um, young, any any kind of people born pre-1980 will remember this film, but, you know, it's the story of a young girl who whose young brother is kidnapped by a, a, a dastardly goblin king, and she's, she has to sort of work her way through this terrible labyrinth, but there are points in the labyrinth where she feels like she's not getting anywhere, and she feels like she's en- she keeps ending up at the beginning of the labyrinth, but it's an illusion. It's, a, you know, it's just an opportunity, well, it's a kind of an opportunity for the labyrinth to try to throw her off, to think that she's not making progress, so she gives up. And I think, you know, we could be seen, we could see our, we could see our life and our emergence into the universe in the same way that our, we've been around for a fraction of a second in the life and the, the, and the, and the mind of the universe. It's a mere blip. The universe is billions of years old and we appeared 200,000 years ago, which is nothing (laughs) right right. you know and our modern humans as we are now modern humans but kind of like you know uh technological humans are even even smaller so when you stand back and you look at the grand nature of our universe and our time here it's kind of absurd Because it's so short and so brief. and But that's what's the interesting thing. It's all about where you're standing and your perspective, you know, how you frame the situation and how you right. look at it. You can either look at the situation and decide this is all is lost. Let's all lie down now and let's all right. just die because there's no hope, you know, or you can stand up and say there is stuff worth saving. There are people worth saving, animals worth saving, even if there is – there's that old analogy of a young man walking across the beach and he's picking up the starfish and throwing them into the ocean. And his friend says to him, what are you doing? What is that? Why are you doing that? And he said, well, I'm, I'm saving the starfish. And he says, why, why, what's the point? And he's like, well, it, it makes a difference to this one and this right. one and this one. And I think it's the same as us in this world. Like we have to keep at it. We have to keep transforming and keep trying to create change because if we don't, who will? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, I think last couple of questions. Um, when we are faced with all these challenges, what, what continues to drive you on a daily basis? Like how do you kind of keep moving forward? Like what is it within you as a person that kind of gives you that courage, determination to just keep at it? Well, I have been lucky that, I, you know, I have a family that's very loving and uh, I, we have a granddaughter who has been, who basically changed my life. Mm-hmm. And I get to be with her most days of the week because we babysit her and we take care of her and help raise her. And she's been pretty much raised a vegan and mm-hmm. she has a very different perspective mm-hmm. uh, on things. And she just comes up with these insights that I say, wow, <laughs> that was a blinder I had on, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I'll tell you a story about her and you'll see how she has affected this. I, I was reading a story to her you know, to put her to bed one night. And at the end of the story, she asks me, you know, Grandpa, who were the first human beings? 
So then I tried to explain to her about evolution. So mm-hmm. I told her, imagine that you're standing on the street and you're holding your mom by your hand and you ask your mom to bring her mom and has, have her stand by your side. And you keep doing that. You have a long line of mothers on one side of the street. And on the other side of the street, you ask a chimpanzee to do the same thing with her mother and their mother and mm-hmm. so on. By the time this, these two lines go from Phoenix to Tucson, which is about 150 miles, they will merge. There'll be one single line because mm-hmm. both sides are going to say, that's my mother too. Mm. She immediately sat up in bed and she said, are you telling me that animals are my family? And I said, yes, they are your family. Wow. And she yeah. said, How old is she? She was, at that time, she was five, I think, five or six. Wow. She said, if they are my family, then why are people eating my family? She started bawling. She said, Grandpa, make them stop. They are eating my family, Grandpa. Make them stop. And I said, Kimaya, what do you think I do? This is my job. I'm trying to make them stop. It's my job. And this was the first time she had heard my job description this way. Okay. So she said, it's your job? Grandpa, you haven't done your job. (laughs) wow when will you do your job grandpa when will you do your job and i said (laughs) i have to do it by 2026 i have to do it by 2026 or we are in big trouble Mm -hmm. so this has to happen by the time you're 16 years old Mm -hmm. and she said promise it's going to happen by the time i'm 16 Mm -hmm. i said i have to promise i'll promise you Mm -hmm. she said give me a pinky promise i said sure (laughs) She said, you can never break a pinky promise. Okay? Mm -hmm. So she made me promise her that the world will be vegan by 2026. And that drives me now. Mm -hmm. That drives me. And then uh, she went and talked to her mother about it. She told her the whole story. And her mother said, what did you make grandpa promise you? (laughs) Do you know how hard it is? Yeah. I mean, we need need the belief. (laughs) Yeah, we have to have the belief, right? So then she comes to me the next day and she says, Grandpa, I hear that you have a very tough job. (laughs) And I said, yes, I have a tough job. And she says, "Uh, you know, you don't have to do it by the time I'm 16. You can do it by the time I'm 17. So she gave me one extra year (laughs) to do it. Brilliant. (laughs) Such a great story. Wow. She's she's definitely going to be um, a warrior, I'm sure. Yeah, she is growing up and uh, taking t- taking taking over. That's for sure. I mean, this is it. There's so many young young children who are kind of born into this world who kind of challenge the status quo almost yeah. at the gate. They, they just intrinsically know, right? And I mean, it. see, for her now, you know, I tell I told her principal this story, and she was saying, "Oh my God!" Looking at things from her perspective. We are all monsters, mm. okay? Because she's seeing all of us, all the rest of the world is world is full of monstrous humans, because <laughs> they're eating her mm. relatives, her her family. Mm. Yeah. What's that quote? Um, we have enslaved the rest of animal creation and have treated our distant cousins in fur and feathers so badly that beyond doubt, if they were able to formulate a religion, they would depict the devil in human form. Mm-hmm. Yeah, see, we we depict the devil in animal form, right? We have we put the tail on the devil, and you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> this is 
Yeah. Even though they are the gentlest creatures, right? Most of them, mm-hmm. they're not doing anything to mm-hmm. us. Right. That's the absurdity of our existence in this world because, you know, we have become, you know, the monsters. Um, of, we have become the monsters of our nightmares, you could say, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that's it. That's, then that's when the change occurs, when we look in the mirror and we, we look at ourselves, look long and hard at ourselves and we say, do we need to live like this? Do we need to make these decisions? When we sit down three times a day and choose a meal, you know, we choose either kindness or we choose cruelty. Um, and I think for many, the, the choice is, is pretty obvious and pretty clear. And I think this is why so many people are making the shift because right. we can live healthy, vibrant, um, vital lives without harming um, others unnecessarily. Right. The proof is here. It's there. Right. 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 <laughs> so if you're listening to this podcast and you're not sure about going vegan, you know, now is the time. Now is the time is to kind of take that opportunity and just go with it because there's many people out there supporting organizations products there's just so much choice now and obviously information and wisdom as well freely available on the internet if you live in a place where you aren't able to access vegan products and vegan food you know you can learn to cook and to prepare healthy vegan food too so there's always a possibility absolutely but I think that's uh, all we have time for for now. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much, Robbie. It's been a pleasure here as um, well. And, 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 and I really um, am excited to hear about everything that you're doing. I wish I could be with you for Vegan World 2026 at the event. Um, if, I can, uh, if I can get some, um, what's the word, miles, uh, air miles. Uh-huh. Air miles. <laughs> <laughs> might come and i might come and join you for the uh, for the conference well stay tuned because there'll be probably one near you soon okay so. amazing well yeah as soon as it uh, as soon as it all starts to materialize please let us know so we can uh, promote it on plant-based news wonderful thank you thanks for listening everyone i've been your host robbie lockie and it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to dr Celeste rao we're here next week with more conversations on veganism health fitness fashion and everything in between see you next time